And that's what we've done recently, packed our bags. We're going on a road trip through the book of James, James chapter one. If you have your Bible, James chapter one is where we're gonna be picking up where we left off last week. I've told you I like a road trip. I really do, I enjoy road trip. And uh, the problem I have on a road trip though is honestly, I'm just confessing my shortcoming. I've told you this before, I like to drive fast. I like to drive in the fast lane. I usually know where I'm going and I wanna get there quick. And so I'm just telling you, this has kind of been an issue I've had all my life, quite frankly. And so this message is entitled, Life in the Fast Lane. So I took a road trip just a couple of months ago with some guys from church, and we went up to Minnesota, and here we are together. Brian Rookstill took the Big Fish Award. That's a 29-inch walleye. We're at the Lake of the Woods near Canada border. And it was just a phenomenal time, phenomenal road trip. But I gotta be honest, it didn't turn out that, that well at first. In fact, I was starting to wonder at first. Because I'm driving. I told you a couple weeks ago, when, when I go on a road trip, I like to drive. I like to have my hands on the wheel, all right? So I do most of the driving, and uh, I like to drive fast. And guys, I'm telling you, I did not even get out of the state of Missouri before I got pulled over. Yes. Yes, this is what I saw, just kind of north of the Kansas City metro somewhere. I hadn't even got to the Iowa border. And uh, you know that it's not starting out well when you catch up to a state trooper. <laughs> and it's not fair anymore, I'm telling you. They can get you the radar now, the technology is out of this world. They can, they can, be dry, they can get you from behind, they can get you from the side, they can get you from the front. I mean, they, they've got you if they want you. So I realized right away, I've never been pulled over when the car's in front of me still. <laughs> he hits the lights and he slows down. I go around him, I pull over, he walks up to the car and says, sir, I just wanna remind you that the state of Missouri has a maximum speed of 70 miles an hour on our highways. To which I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm just gonna warn you, I just want you to slow down, remember 70 miles an hour on our highways. And so I was a hearer of the word and I therefore became a doer of the word. <laughs> Because I've been through this before, and I don't like giving my money away to the state of Missouri unless I have to. You know what I'm saying? And so what amazed me, though, about four or five miles up the road, there was another state trooper sitting right there waiting for me to go by. I guarantee you what happened. He called his buddy up the road and said, hey, I just pulled over a 12-passenger van. It's white. It's going to be coming at you. I told him just to slow down. I warned him, if he's flying by you, you be sure to write him a ticket. So fortunately, I heard the word, and I was then a doer of the word. Like, I was going the speed limit by then, all right? I got a warning. All it took was a warning. Guys, I'm telling you, today's message for some of us is a warning. To not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. Because on this road trip we're taking, remember, the destiny is spiritual maturity. This is what God wants for each of us, what Jesus called life abundantly. And what I want you to see is what James is saying is the same thing his brother in the faith Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all manner of conduct because it's written, be holy for I am holy. This one that we follow known as Jesus is holy. That means sinless and righteous and it's impossible to think about a holy Christ being followed by a band of unholy Christians. And so this is the destiny that we live lives that are holy. That's where God is 
is taking us on this journey. Now, there's a reason why God says that our lives are to be holy is because you can't really be godly as a follower of God apart from pursuing a life that is holy. What does that mean? A lot of us don't know this word holy. What does that mean? It simply means to pursue lives that are holy by living lives that are godly, which is the only way to live a life truly healthy and happy. You see, if you try to be happy apart from being holy, you'll end up neither holy nor happy. And that is why so many of us have lives that are unhealthy because we pursued being happy apart from a life that is holy. What does that mean then? It means God's goal for our life is to live abundantly, but you can't live abundantly apart from living obediently. And that's why James 1, it says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I could have been a hearer of the word, but had I not been a doer of the word, consequences would have followed. I want you to see, this is why today, James takes us on this road trip through temptation because God has for you a destination. It is a godly destination. But on this road trip of life, we're gonna have to learn how to overcome temptation. And so we're gonna pick it up right here in James 1, verse 12, where we left off a week ago. He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. And guys, the reality is every single human being will endure temptation. When we know what is right, we're tempted still to do wrong. And that's part of this road trip of life for every person. He says, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted uh, by evil, nor does he tempt anyone himself. Listen, we like to think sometimes the devil made me do it. And we're learning a few things right here from the book of James. The devil can't make us do anything. Now look at what it says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And so where does temptation begin? Sin and temptation, James tells us, begins within. See, none of us can say, well, the devil made me do it. No, the reality, we have plenty of opportunity all by our little old selves to mess up our lives without any help from the devil. And that's the reality of what James is saying. We have this fallen nature that we have within as members of Adam's fallen race. And that means sin already dwells within. Temptation comes from within. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desires and enticed. That word desire in the Greek language often is translated as lust. We have lust that dwells within. Now, a lot of times we think lust and lust has to do with sex, but you can lust for anything. Yes, you can lust for sex, but you can also lust for power. You can lust for fame. You can lust for money. Uh, you can lust for food. Lust is any desire you have within to somehow fulfill a godly need in an ungodly way. And what James is saying is God doesn't tempt us. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt any man. Remember, Satan tempts, but God tests. In this time of temptation, God is testing our faith to prove our faith and refine our faith. Now, here's the reality. There's another theology besides the one that says the devil made me do it. There's this popular theology that I think has a distorted view of God's sovereignty that says God has predestined everything and everybody. So it makes God the author of evil. In other words, well, the devil didn't make me do it, but God did. 
Like I'm just kind of a puppet on a string and you know, I don't really have any free will or I can't have really my own moral choices to make. And James says that's silly theology too, if not complete heresy. God is not the author of evil. He allowed the possibility of evil, but he's not the author of evil. He allows you the possibility to say yes to him or no to him. He allows you the free will to reject God or choose to follow God. Now, the reason he allows that free will is because if he didn't give you a free will, your yes would have no meaning. If you didn't have the ability to say no, then what meaning would your yes have? See, love that's not freely given isn't love. Worship that's not freely given isn't worship. God is not the author of evil. The reality is our sin begins within as members of Adam's fallen race. You see, the reality is we learn in Genesis 3 that Adam ate of that forbidden tree. That was his test. Now, here's what happened. God told Adam, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, because you and I were in him, we all died with him. And because we were in him, we now have that same fallen nature of Adam. Genesis 5 three, Adam begat a son, Seth, in his own image, in his own likeness. He'd been created in God's image and God's likeness, but now when he sinned, he could only reproduce that fallen image of him. And that means every single one of us are born physically with this fallen nature that is naturally bent towards sin. And that, you see, is what James is saying in these opening verses. All temptation begins within. We have all a fallen nature that is bent towards sin. We inherit it from our father, Adam. This is why, by the way, Jesus said you must be born again. You are not born physically as a child of God. You're born the first time physically as a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. That's why Jesus said twice in John 3, you must be born again. And only once you're born again by faith in him do you get back the image of God that Adam lost and you can become then a child of God, the title that Adam lost. And what happens then when you're born again spiritually by faith in the son of God and you then become a child of God is you get back the image of God and all of a sudden you're an image bearer. You're here now to bear the image of God. And you can be able to see why God says be holy for I am holy. We are to bear the image of God on this earth through lives that are holy, through lives that are godly. Now here's the reality. You have a divine nature within you now and you still have that old fallen nature within you now and there's always a tug of war for control which is why even when you know what is right, it's still easy to do wrong. And that's why human beings, every single one of us here, if we're being honest, every single one of us are really, really good at sinning. Think about it. It's not a learned behavior. You just know what to do. You just know how to do it. Some of us are really good at sinning, and some of us are really, really good at sinning. I personally am really good at it. Don't sit there like you're all self-righteous, because you know you are too, okay? Let's just get real this morning. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us are really good at doing wrong, even when we know what is right. That's the nature of temptation. And it dwells from within, without any help from the devil. The devil can't make us do a thing. Now, just because something is legal or feels natural does not make it moral. And it's really important we have this discussion because we live at a time in American society that says today there are no absolutes morally. Everybody can do whatever is right in your own eyes. And I want you to see that God is the moral law giver, not us, not culture, not, not government, God. Because we see more and more where, well, if it's legal, then it must be okay. There are lots of things that are legal, but God says it's still immoral. There are lots of things that feel natural that God says is still immoral. 
Hey, the reason why Dr. Christopher Wan is coming next week is to tell his story, his story of redemption. Dr. Christopher Wan was openly, for years and years, a part of the LGBT community, living a homosexual lifestyle. He gave his life to Jesus. He began walking in redemption. God redeemed him from that lifestyle. And now we're bringing him here because, honestly, issues related to the LGBT community and homosexuality, as our society has redefined sexual morality, the church is kind of in the middle going, what do we do? Here's what we do. Listen carefully. God has not changed a thing. He hasn't changed what he's ever said. He hasn't changed his mind. Now, here's the reality. We're, we're having this discussion next week because this is an area where the church historically hasn't done very well. When it comes to matters of homosexuality and lesbian lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, here, here's the reality. If you here today have same-sex attraction, you need to hear me say this well. God loves you deeply, infinitely, passionately, unconditionally. He does. And it's a good thing God loves him that way or her that way because if you don't have same-sex attraction, you have another issue with a different sin. We all have a sin. It's bent toward one direction or another, and the good news is God loves you too. You see, as a child of God, your sin cannot separate you from the love of God, Romans chapter 8. You say, how does God love us so deeply and unconditionally even when we sin? The same reason you love your children. Think about this for just a moment. If you've had a baby as a mommy or a daddy, uh, you have those little babies and you love them so deeply, don't you? I mean, why? Why do you love a baby so deeply? They can contribute nothing to the family. <laughs> they, 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 they don't do anything for anybody. They just lay there and wait to be waited on. Uh, all that little baby does is puke, pee, and poop. I mean... He just makes a mess of things, but you still love him. You know why? Because he's yours. Because she's your daughter. And your love is not conditional on anything she does or doesn't do. You see, that's why God loves you, no matter what you do. God's love for you is not the issue. But here's the reality. God wants you to grow up spiritually because sin makes your life messy. In the same way a baby in infancy can do nothing but mess up themselves and make a mess around them and poop their diapers and puke all over everything, here's the reality. Infancy is messy. You know why God wants you to grow up spiritually? Because sin is messy. Sin messes up your life, and God doesn't want you to live a messed up life. He wants you to grow up to live abundantly, not messy. He loves you unconditionally. And so Dr. Christopher Wan is going to try to help us maybe get this right. Because historically, churches uh, historically didn't do well navigating this issue. Historically, it's all about truth and no grace. Condemnation, no compassion. And that's why the church has been marginalized to speak into the social issues of our day. Jesus didn't come for our condemnation, John 3, 17. He came for our salvation. That is the message of the church. Now, on the other hand, the new trend with church, the, the pendulum swings all the way over here, where the church used to be all truth and no grace. Now the church is all about grace and no truth. As though we've now redefined what is right and wrong too. And I want you to see that twice in the Gospels, Jesus is called a man full of grace and truth. It was never grace apart from truth or truth apart from grace. That means if we are full of Jesus, we're not going to choose between the two. Our lives are going to be full of grace and truth too. 
And so we as Christians need to learn how to walk in truth, but do it with grace. And that's why Dr. Christopher Wan is coming next week. Now, I want you to understand something. A lot of people think, well, because it feels natural, it must be moral. I mean, this is how, you know, we've come to redefine this issue as society. Well, there's so many people walking around that says, I've always felt this way. I mean, I've always been attracted to the same sex. I want you to see the faulty thinking in trying to say what is moral or immoral based on, well, I've always felt this way. Because let me tell you how I've always felt. I mean, from the day I can remember, back to my deepest memories of childhood, I have been attracted to women. <laughs> Lots of them. I mean, I remember chasing little girls around the kindergarten classroom. I mean, you know, I couldn't wait to get out to recess because I was going to chase the girls. I had no idea what I would do if I actually caught one. <laughs> but I was going to chase them. It's what I did. I mean, I realize I like girls. I like lots of girls. I always have. But since October the 5th, 1991, I have been a one-woman man. You know why? Because I'm a moral creature with a moral conscience accountable to a moral creator. That means I can't do whatever I want to do. Just because it feels natural, it wouldn't be moral. You see that same faulty thinking? Listen, if we were all going to live that way, I would be a repeater cheater. Because left to my natural self, what would come natural to me is romantically pursuing every beautiful woman I see. And since that feels natural to me, that's okay, right? You guys are okay with that, yes? Well, I'm glad to, feel, I'm, I'm glad to know that this class gets it right, okay. No, it's not okay. You see, just because something's legal or even it feels natural doesn't make it moral. God alone is the lawgiver morally, and God hasn't changed his mind about anything. This is why it says in 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It's saying there is no law but my law. You see, that's called anarchy spiritually. When you no longer are under God's authority, now you're walking according to your own authority. You enter into moral anarchy, and that is now where our society is, morally speaking, there is no right, there is no wrong, there's no such thing as sin. Every man decides to do what is right in his own eyes. That's complete anarchy. And if you want to see anarchy on the streets, listen, go to, say, Latin America on a mission trip sometime. Because what you see in some parts of the world where there is no law when it comes to how you drive is absolute chaos on the roadways. You see, there's a reason why the highway department puts lines out there. When you go home today, what those lines are saying is for your own good, stay between the lines. When you cross over the line, what you're saying is there is no law. I'm going to drive my way. I'm going to do it my way. And guess what? You can cross over the line, and you can drive in the fast lane, and you can drive in the wrong lane, and you may get away with it for quite a while, but eventually it's going to lead to your destruction. And that is why God puts lines in our lives. He tells us clearly the lines, morally speaking, because he wants our health. He wants us to succeed. He doesn't want to watch the collision that ultimately ends in our complete destruction. This is a picture of the truck two and a half years ago that I was driving two and a half years ago, going home on a Sunday night, going around a bend in the highway, an S-curve, in this little two-lane highway I live on. I had just enough time to think to myself, that guy's in my lane, bam! He crossed over the line. 
And had I not been slowed down for this S-curve, had I been not going 35 miles an hour, say I'd been going at 55 or 60 miles an hour, I might be dead and he would too. Probably the only thing that saved our lives was I'd slowed down to go around this curve. He crossed over the line, it was a head-on collision. I thought for sure a fatality. I stumbled out of my truck and it was deathly quiet. Those inside the car that hit me weren't moving, they weren't saying a thing, but I saw a hole in the windshield where he had come through. And as I got to the car, those boys began to wake up, and let me tell you something, it was ugly. You see, when you choose to drive in your own lane and you choose not to pay attention to the lines that God has put in your life, it will always end in destruction. That's what God tells us and that's why he tells us about sin and how to overcome temptation because if you don't do this, it will end in a horrible collision somewhere down this road of life. And that's why he says this thing, Romans 6, 23, the wage of sin is death. Sin always leads to ruin and destruction, always. He tells you ahead of time what's gonna happen. Now this has to do with death eternally. I mean, if you live in sin and you don't give your life to Jesus and for, be forgiven of that sin, one day you're gonna die eternally and be separated from God forever and ever and ever and ever. That's called death spiritually. But it's not just death spiritually. Sin leads to death physically. Sin leads to death temporally. Sin leads to death to marriages. Sin will lead to death to relationships. Sin leads to death to your health. It's death to your wealth. Eventually, it brings death and ruin and destruction. And so James tells us how to overcome temptation. Now, look at James 1.15. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Now, this is the progression of temptation. This is the progression of sin that ultimately leads to death and destruction. This may be years in the making. Now, I want you to know something. It says sin is conceived. Where is it conceived? It's conceived within. Sin is born within. It's a little baby sin. It's conceived. But what happens to that sin? It eventually becomes full grown. And what used to be just a little sin becomes a big sin. You used to be able to control it. Now it's controlling you. You say, how does this happen? Well, I'll, I'll explain it this way. So this is my young son, Josh. He's 20. My youngest son, he was on that road trip to uh, Minnesota, and we went fishing. Now, don't pay attention to the fish. I want you to look at those biceps. I mean, look at that kid's shoulders. I, I mean, I, I, I'm just amazed sometimes. I work out with him still. Like, I never dreamed this kid would bench press more than his dad. He's stronger than me now. He's what we call jacked. I mean, he's like this freak of nature. He's like, they say, how did this happen? Well, here's the, I remember when he was just a little baby. Uh, I helped conceive him. Well, at least I was there. I was there when he was born. I didn't give birth to him, but I was a very significant part of his mama giving birth to him, right? I remember him when he was just this little baby. You say, how did he get from being a little baby to being that? I'll tell you how. I fed him. <laughs> I fed him well. Not only did I feed him well, I worked out with him 
all of his life. We've exercised together, we've worked out together, we lift weights together. You see, he went from being a little baby and I could control him, I was much stronger than him, but I began to feed him. And not only that, I worked out with him and eventually, because I fed him and worked out with him, what was once a little baby is now stronger than me. You see, that's the nature of sin. It's conceived, it's just a little baby sin. But you begin to feed it, and over the years and course of time, you work out with it over and over again. You're exercising it. All of a sudden, it's getting bigger, and it's getting stronger. And at one time, it was just a baby that you could control, but now it controls you. You see, that's the nature of all sin. Well, I just look at pornography two or three times a month. It's just a baby sin. I can control it. Yeah, you keep feeding that, and you keep exercising that. Pretty soon, it's going to go from being a baby two or three times a month, a little sin you can control and now all of a sudden it's two or three times a day and you're completely out of control that's the nature of sin you see the issue is not having a drink the bible doesn't say it's a sin to have a beer or a sin to have a glass of wine that's not even a debate that one drink is not the issue the problem is the one you have after that and the one you have after that and the one you have after that you see it started out with something you could control and all of a sudden you've completely lost control and it may have took years to get there but you fed that sin and you exercised it and you worked out with it all of a sudden what used to be something you can control is now something that controls you. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves, you know, I've never committed the sin of adultery. Let me do that one today. I've never committed sexual infidelity. Let me try this today because, you know, I've never done that one. I've done that one. I've done that one. Let me blow up my family today. Let me lose my marriage today. Yeah, let me do that one. That is not how it works. It's usually years in the making. It's conceived within, it becomes mental idolatry. You've thought about it and you've fantasized about it and what you think about inwardly, you will eventually do outwardly. And there's that girl you work with and you like to flirt with her. Now you'd never dream of actually going to bed with her because she's married and so are you. But you like to flirt a little bit. And so that little baby sin is conceived inwardly. And it's months and months in the making. You go to work every day and you just feed that fallen nature in you and you work it out a little bit and you exercise it a little bit. Next thing you know, you're in a full-blown affair and you don't know how to get out of it. I realize this might be getting a little too real for some of us here, but I'm trying to give you a warning because God is giving you a wooing. He's wooing you because he loves you and he wants to warn you it's not gonna end well for you. And so immediately as you realize sin has been conceived, like I know what's going on in here, immediately I need to deal with it while it's in here because once it gets out here, it's gonna be a lot harder to deal with it out there than when it's still in here. Don't feed it, don't work out with it, don't exercise it, it's gonna get bigger and bigger and those little babies get stronger and stronger. And that you see is what he's teaching us in James 1.15, inner temptation eventually becomes an outer demonstration, it leads to an ungodly destination and ultimately your destruction. And this might be years in the making, inner temptation, that thing in your life, whatever that thing is. You begin to toy with it inwardly. You think about it inwardly. That becomes mental idolatry, fantasy. And that idolatry eventually always leads to captivity. You see, you think, and eventually you do. 
Stinking living began with really stinking thinking. Stinking thinking leads to wrong living. That inner temptation now eventually becomes an outward demonstration. It leads eventually to an ungodly destination. And when you go in the wrong direction, it takes you to an ungodly destination. It will always end in your destruction. I've never actually uh, shared what I'm about to share with you, but you see, this is the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. Galatians 6 and verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. You see what he's saying? It's the law of the harvest. You get what you sow. If you sow the seeds of righteousness and obedience, you will be blessed. But if you sow the seeds of sin again and again and again, the law of the harvest is you reap a whirlwind of destruction. And it was Christmas night, 1997. I've never shown anybody this picture. I was still a cop in those days. Christmas night, 1997, I get called to a vehicular, 435 in I-70. And this was the scene. Picture quality's not that great. These were the olden days, back in the 90s. If you want instant pictures, you remember the Polaroids, the Kodak cameras, and you take the picture and it spit it out, and then you had to do this, and you know, yeah, those were the olden days. I've kept this picture all these years. I've never shown it to anybody until now. So moved by what I saw. Christmas gifts and wrapping paper strung all over the highway. This family was hit at home from having celebrated Christmas with other family. As I take this picture, I'm standing and at my feet is a baby still in her car seat, dead. Her mom and dad still in the car, her mama with a red Christmas sweater, mangled, arm hanging out of the car. Drunk driver crossed over the median, killed all of them instantly. I thought to myself, the seriousness of sin, the depravity, the sobriety, the sobering reality. And what I'm trying to tell you this morning is this is a picture of what sin brings. I don't just mean literally. Yeah, if you drive drunk, eventually it's not gonna end well for you. But this is more than just a picture literally of drink and drive. It's a picture symbolically of the nature of sin, complete destruction. And that's why we need to take it seriously. And I realize, you know, this is an age where even in churches, we don't like to talk about sin. You know, I was raised in my Baptist tradition. You knew you're in a Baptist church if they make sin into a two-syllable word, you know? Sin. <laughs> uh, sin. You know that. We don't like taking sin seriously. I mean, we like the happy, clappy, you know, the God loves me, pep rally. But on occasion, we need to be reminded of the serious nature of sin. 
And if you wanna make it to that godly destination, you're gonna have to learn to overcome temptation. We all go through the same stuff because we're all made of the same stuff. There's not one of us, you see, that is exempt. I want you to give you three things to think about every time you face temptation. Number one, your body's presentation. How do you overcome temptation? Fill in the blank, whatever it is. You know what your blank is. You know your area of sin. Fill in the blank. How do you overcome it? Doesn't matter what it is, it's the same way again and again. First it begins with your body's presentation. This is what Paul said in Romans 12 and verse one. I beseech you or I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He's saying, listen, you make your body a presentation. You present your body as a living sacrifice. Like God today, my body is not mine. I can't do whatever I want with my body. You have a right to rule my life and you're ruling my life is always right. These hands are not mine. These feet are not mine. These eyes are not mine. This mouth is not mine. This mind is not mine. Jesus, it all belongs to you. I present it to you today as a living sacrifice. You see, it's impossible to present your body to sin if you present your body to him. In the heat of temptation, what do you do? You think through this. I present my body to you. See, this word presentation in the Greek, it is not a neutral thing, it's an active thing. When I was a cop, occasionally people would run from the law, okay? And uh, some of us here are running from the law of God. We're running from God right now. Here's what you do. On occasion, I'd be chasing somebody, running from the law, they'd get tired, and finally they turn out, they throw their hands up. What does this mean? I surrender. See, this is an active presentation. This is what you do every day, I surrender. It's literally giving yourself to Jesus saying, cuff me up, I'm yours. See, you're gonna wear the handcuffs of sin or you're gonna wear the handcuffs of him. You choose every day, one of the two. And every day, as you present your body to him, you're saying, Jesus, cuff me up. My life is not my own. These hands don't belong to me. These feet don't belong to me. These eyes don't belong to me. This mouth doesn't belong to me. I'm presenting my body to you as a living sacrifice. I present my body to him, and therefore I will not present it to sin. You see, this is what Paul taught too in Romans chapter eight. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, Romans 6 and verse 13. You see, he's saying you've got instruments. Your members are your hands. Your members are your feet. Your members are your mouth. Your members are your eyes. The members of your body. He's saying these are instruments of sin if you will not present them as instruments to him. God, you use me today. And God, as long as I'm presenting myself to you, I cannot present myself to sin. It begins with your body's presentation and then there's your mind's submission. You see, the battle's always conceived within. It's right here between the ears. It's what goes on in the mind. It's learning to mind the mind. And so here's what he says, very next verse, Romans 12 and verse two, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want you to notice something. The world is always trying to conform us. The world's trying to mold us into their thinking, into their image, but God is trying to mold us into his image, in his the way of thinking. And so the reality is transformation comes through our mind submission. It's when I stop thinking what the world wants me to think, and I start thinking what the Word wants me to think. That's the renewal of the mind. Remember, as a child of God, your spirit has been reborn, but the mind is never reborn. The mind must be renewed, and it has to be renewed daily. That means I present my body and then submit my mind. 
And here's the reality. Here's what Paul is teaching. When you submit your mind to God, the spirit rules and sin retreats. This is what's called the spirit-filled life. You have a body, soul, and spirit as a child of God. The spirit is meant to rule the soul, and the soul is meant to rule the body. Now, most of us invert that. We do whatever the body says to do. The lust of our flesh, the cravings of our flesh. I'm going on a road trip. Went to one week with my wife and visited the students and came back, had a great time. You ever notice road trips are the hardest time, it seems like, to submit your body when it comes to food. <laughs> you got road trip food, I got road trip food, this boom chicka pop popcorn stuff. It's like they crack it, I mean, I swear, they pop it and crack cocaine or something because it's like, <laughs> ah, just addictive, man. I'm like, oh. I'll eat the whole stinking bag. My body says, mmm, mm, good. My wife and I, honestly, fill your blank in, ours is ice cream. And we don't care what kind. <laughs> We're not particular. Like, you gotta take a potty break on a road trip. There's McDonald's everywhere. Hey, honey, we could go potty at McDonald's and you know they got dollar ice cream cones. <laughs> did it there, did it on the way back. It's, it's easier to sin when you got a friend. <laughs> Just remember. Some of us need to get a new playmate, get a new playground, all right? In this case, I'm married to her. I, 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 don't, I can't, don't have anywhere to go. So we're in this together. Here, here's the point. Your body says, feed me. Get me that nicotine. I need a drink. Click on pornography, whatever it is. Here's what you do. Present your body, submit your mind. My body is not my own. My mind is not mine. You see, this is called the spirit-filled life. All of a sudden, the spirit is ruling the mind where you make your decisions, and the mind is then ruling the body instead of the body calling all the shots. And that's what now becomes the spirit-filled life. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, the Spirit-filled life is all of a sudden now where the Spirit of God inside of me is controlling me and ruling me. No longer is it my mind and no longer is it my body. There's the body's presentation, there's the mind submission, but you're gonna need a personal crucifixion. And you need to know that 2,000 years ago you were in Christ, if indeed you're a child of God. You were in him and that means you died with him. Now the good news, because you died with him, you also rose with him. You can now live in the victory of the resurrection, but only if every day you go through a crucifixion. Historically what happened, Romans six and verse six, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The old man is the old you, the sinful you, your flesh nature, your fallen nature. Knowing this, the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Dead men don't dance. I've done a lot of funerals, open casket. I haven't found one of them that sinned one time. See, when you're dead, you can't sin. And that old nature in you, yes, it still is in there, but it's lost the rule over you. You see, it's been crucified with him. All of a sudden, you 
don't have to sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. That happened once already historically. That is your reality positionally, but now you must do it daily. You see, your sin nature is dead in Christ positionally, but now you must choose to die daily. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Guys, every day when I get out of bed, somewhere between my house and here, I go through this process of an active presentation, putting my mind in submission and a personal crucifixion. Jesus, today I die so that you can live in me and live through me. I give up rights to my body. I can't think whatever I want to. I can't say whatever I want to. I'm not gonna look at whatever I want to. I'm presenting my body as instruments of righteousness. The members of my body presenting it to him instead of sin, putting my mind in subjection to the rule of the spirit instead of the rule of sin and a personal crucifixion. God, today I die. I give up my life to live for you. And this is why James began this whole section in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You know what the crown of life is? The crown of life, according to Revelation 2.10, is the martyr's crown. For those who willingly lay down their life and they die for Christ, they're gonna hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, and Jesus is gonna put a crown upon them called the crown of life. Now, you know why you don't have to die literally to get the crown of life? Because this is how you overcome sin and temptation. You die figuratively. And every single day, here's the choice. The crown of life is yours if you so choose. And you can die to the sin and live or live for the sin and die in every single moment of every single day. That is the choice, live or die. Live for the sin, you will die. Die to the sin, you will live. Jesus, I pray for every person, God in heaven, this, in this place today, that today would be the day of salvation for many that need to be born again, that need to be truly forgiven of their sin, to know what it means to truly be a Christian, walk in redemption. For some of us, God, today, we know you personally. We are indeed a child of God, but we are living life in the fast lane. We're driving in the wrong lane. We have crossed over that line. God in heaven, I pray that repentance would come to our hearts and redemption would come to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him the glory, would you, today? I love you all very much.